Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we talk about advertising, media and marketing. I'm your host today, Omar Oates, Campaign Media and Tech Editor. And I think we've got quite a big, I would say maybe even jam-packed episode of the podcast for you today. Uh, a little bit, our Creativity and Culture Editor, Brittany Kiefer, will be discussing discrimination in casting that sadly still happens in the advertising industry. Uh, she'll be joined by Alex Bennett-Grant from We Are Pie and Jodie Furlong from The casting. Um, they're going to discuss how the Black Lives Matter movement provided the impetus to act on discrimination, accountability and racism in casting briefs. But by popular demand, I think, judging by um, the feedback I got from last week's episode, is Jeremy Lee, Premium Content Editor at Campaign. Jeremy, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very, feeling very flattered that you got positive feedback. Do tell. Or you might be making it up. Well, it well. It, it was most. It was mostly on the comedy stylings of Jeremy Lee, if I can, if I can put it bluntly. Um, I think that it's just, it's just a given. Uh, your insightful uh, news analysis, but also um, they thought that um, you, you gave good joke as well. Um, so that's good. Always, uh, always. I think the sound effects from producer Ben helped as well. If I don't know, <laughs> or not. Thank you, Omar. It's very kind of you to say so. It's good to be back. Uh, I'm yes, um, not overshadowing the host at all. Uh, and but but this is a special week for campaign because it's actually the first print issue uh, that we've had in a while. Uh, we're beating the coronavirus crisis pandemic one issue at a time. And joining me on this special occasion, we have Gideon Spanier, campaign's editor in chief uh he's been very you've been very busy haven't you uh, getting this issue to press and i'm personally extremely proud that we've done that um gideon uh, how has it been kind of managing um, that whole process during these difficult times well i think it's gone reasonably well i think jeremy has talked about it on previous podcasts it's been tough it's been tough for all of us as individuals as a team and um there have been some people who've left the company and Claire Beale, our global editor-in-chief, has written a superb farewell, farewell column when she stepped down, which is in the new September issue. Uh, on the cover is Misan Harriman, who is the photographer who took pictures of the Black Lives Matter protests in London and got spotted by Edward Enninful, the editor-in-chief of Vogue. And his, uh, Misan Harriman ended up photographing the, the, the cover of Vogue, and we've spoken to him. He's really interesting about being the first black photographer, black man, I should say, to photograph the cover of British Vogue. And also uh, the sort of challenges in terms of getting, I guess, building a career. Um, he only moved into photography at the age of 39. He was dyslexic and had uh, some time in the city. And I think given the recent debate about ageism, including on this podcast, uh, very cheering to see someone's sort of reinvent themselves, if that's the right phrase, at the age of 39, and he's only, I think, 42 now. And that fits with uh, the casting feature. So, you know, who appears in front of the camera and who appears and who's behind the camera are, are clearly linked. And um, Brittany has uh, interviewed Misan Harriman and also has done this great feature on casting we're going to hear about. And also in the new issue is, it's the 50th anniversary of Saatchi and Saatchi, which launched on the front page of campaign in, on the 11th of September, 1970. Yes. And it coincidentally, but perhaps with beautiful symmetry, is the 25th anniversary of MNC Saatchi, the breakaway agency which uh, Charles and Morris helped set up 
uh, when they got thrown out of Saatchi and Saatchi in 1995. And so we've got a, we've called it a double whammy. We've spoken to the founders of MNC Saatchi, that is the three other than Charles and Morris who didn't want to talk. And, uh, you know, it's a great story. Maybe we'll talk a bit more about that. Uh, it's one of the things if you speak to people outside of the advertising industry, you talk about Saatchi and Saatchi and MNC Saatchi, and it can be quite confusing to explain the history. Um, but you're right, it's amazing symmetry. Um, one's 25 years old and one's 50 years old around about the same time. Um, but we actually managed to uncover a little scoop, didn't we, Gideon? Apparently, um, they've actually been in secret talks to reunite and only have one Saatchi and Saatchi agency after all. Yeah, so this is interesting. I think it's been long speculated on. So Saatchi and Saatchi became the biggest advertising agency group in the world in the 1980s, but they took on too much debt. They tried to buy Midland Bank and that ended up with the brothers being uh, effectively uh, frozen out and they left. And the, the breakaway in 1995 always was odd, but you know they built a reasonable sized business but uh, about 2,500 people at the last count. Um, the logic of having two Saatchi agencies, one Saatchi and Saatchi, part of now of Publicist Group, and then an independent, did not make much sense. They both actually have done reasonably well, but neither of them are the Saatchi and Saatchi of the heyday 25 plus years ago. So the talks happened uh, on and off a couple of times in the last 10 years and the publicists don't want to talk about it. Uh, the remaining founders of MNC Saatchi who are Jeremy Sinclair, David Kershaw and Bill Muirhead have confirmed that they, they, they talked to Maurice Levy who was the, the CEO and is now the chairman of the supervisory board of publicists and the impression I've got is they would love, they've said it publicly, they would love to reunite and be one that is them and see Saatchi lot what Saatchi and Saatchi want I imagine because they haven't said anything is uh, they they don't they'd rather MNC Saatchi maybe didn't exist um they also didn't the talks never went beyond uh, for I think I might euphemistically say sort of lunches and drinks in Paris and and London I, there was never anything which went beyond what do you think how can we make this work well, Gideon, that's, that's sort of, you know, is, is it, do you think it's fueled by sort of misty-eyed nostalgia rather than publicists needing MNC Saatchi? Uh, nostalgia on whose part? Well, it's sort of, as you say, there's a symmetry to it. It's quite romantic that the Saatchis are reunited and the brands come together. But is there actually a strong business case for the two to be united? Uh, no, I don't think there necessarily is a strong business case. Otherwise, it, it might well have happened. So, um you will remember, Jeremy, that Walker Media was an independent media agency which was backed by MNC Saatchi and bought by a publicist group. And the publicists bought it in two stages from MNC Saatchi in, between 2013 and 2019. So actually, they could have consummated a, a whole deal, if you like. But publicist group is, uh, you know, I don't know how many agencies it's got, but it's got dozens of, across different disciplines. Saatchi and Saatchi is just one of them. And with big clients like Procter & Gamble, they are integrating all different disciplines, not just the creative. Uh, their model is called Power of One. And it was very hard to see how MNC Saatchi would fit in. The truth is, is that probably publicist group didn't need MNC Saatchi. That was the first thing. I think the pride 
and loyalty to the Saatchi brand that the MNC Saatchi founders had made it appealing for them to bring it together. They wanted something like a joint venture where MNC Saatchi and Saatchi and Saatchi would come together, but as a semi-independent company, separate from Publicis. And I can see why Publicis wouldn't be interested in that. I should add, by the way, that whilst Publicis won't talk, uh, they also, uh, how can I put it, uh, didn't seem to think that the JV was even remotely discussed. <laughs> it's just a, it's the power of that, the Sarch name it endures, isn't it? I, I'm so old, and I don't know whether you were there, Gideon, uh, 10 years ago for the M&C Sarchi 15th, and uh, they had the big party at the Sarchi Gallery, obviously, you know, the big brand of Sarchi. And it was an extraordinary affair, and there was sort of like Peter Mounson and Baroness Thatcher and Lord Daly, I and mean, it was just the establishment were out in force. Uh, and then five years previous to that, they had a big street party there, took over Golden Square, and I just remember this, this sort of smell of weed drifting, <laughs> I don't know who was smoking, the pervading smell of weed drifting around Golden Square. Uh, this year, of course, things are very different. There's no big party. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully in 10 years time, there might, there might be another one in five years. So one of the things we did as part of this anniversary coverage, and you point out, Jeremy, which is correct, that there isn't actually that much of a celebration that, MNC Saatchi's doing, they, they, because of COVID and Saatchi and Saatchi um, are doing some things, I think, but not quite yet. This, you know, this is, a, it's not an easy uh, thing to think about an anniversary. It's just another date in time. But we dug out the 1970 launch interview that Charles Saatchi gave. And he was so uh, full of energy. He was 27 years old. And he was really out to shake up the ad industry. And he was saying that, you know, most advertising is either terrific or shit, that all the creatives <laughs> think like salespeople and you, know, you don't need account executives. Now, of course, they ended up having account executives. But the, the point was, was that, and he was saying that how so much marketers have sort of got obsessed by research instead of actually driving sales. There, a lot of people have tried to explain what Saatchi is. David Kershaw talked about an outrageous desire to change the world. We also got an interview, a little scoop, a second scoop with Mick the Merc, who was a driver for the Saatchi agencies for 40 years. And he said, Saatchi is synonymous with success. And I think if there's nostalgia, it's for a time when Saatchi not just was the most famous agency brand, but actually was the, the agency that these big brands like British Airways, Silk Cut, the independent newspaper when it launched, they all went to Saatchi. It was the place to be. And the truth is, is that there's no agency in the world like that now. I think those principles that uh, you, know, you said that Charles Saatchi mentioned back in 1970 about advertising either being shit or brilliant and the marketers are obsessed with research. You could argue that's still the case today, couldn't you? So those, those may endure, although... Perhaps later we'll see some ads that aren't shit or brilliant. <laughs> they, may be they may be indifferent. <laughs> I mean, I would just add as a, as a sort of closer on this, the Saatchi story is a story of entrepreneurs. It's a story of outsiders. They were um, two Iraqi Jewish brothers. Uh, another connection with campaign was Morris Saatchi used to work at Haymarket, uh, which may or may not have had something to do with the excellent coverage ah. they got for them. <laughs> and the, this is a story of what, people love about creative industries and advertising it's people who spotted a gap in the market who got on with it did it themselves and had uh, bravado and bravery and you know changing the world is a bit extreme but it was advertising that made you sit up and take notice 
And this specific moment uh, uh, near the bottom of the COVID recession, you need and want people to feel like nothing is impossible. Go out and do it. It's amazing what you can achieve. And um, it's been well documented in campaign and elsewhere, the accountancy issues that MNC Saatchi have had. And um, finally on this, does this lessen even more so the possibility that MNC could enter into a joint venture with anyone, let alone Saatchi and Saatchi? And what's the latest on that? Can we expect more news in the coming weeks about that? Well, that's a really good point, Omar. So uh, about you know, August 2019, MNC Saatchi had to admit that they had some accounting irregularities and misstatements. And by December last year, the, the, the figure had reached 11.6 million pounds. Not a huge amount of money, but very bad for uh, the reputation of the business. Morris Saatchi resigned. He had been you know, in partnership with those other three co-founders for 24 years and prior to that, Saatchi and Saatchi. So that was devastating. The accounts are being checked and rechecked and checked again and they have still not signed them off. They've got to do it by the 30th of September. And those accounts eventually, these are covering 2018 and 2019, will, uh, if you like, make clear the exact position of the company. And there has been speculation about whether there could be an exit by the founders or uh, a sale. Uh, a tech investor and entrepreneur called Vin Maria bought 13% of the shares in May. And once it's clear how much cash is in the business and what the state of play is now, yeah, it's very possible that the shareholders, because the founders only have a small stake, uh, you know, they could sell it. And uh, I think you will see some change, if nothing else, a leadership change. I don't think that the um, old guard who've presided over this accounting mess can... Uh, yeah, I don't think they will be likely to stay. They didn't say that, but I find it hard to believe they will want to. I think they want to draw a line, to be honest. Gideon, do you think that part of the problem for the accounting scam came because they've always had, as you mentioned, that sort of spirit of entrepreneurship, that when they sort of bought or partly acquired other companies, they wanted them to continue to be entrepreneurs rather than be sort of sucked into the corporate body, and that that may have led to sort of lax standards in terms of how the financial reporting went. I think it would be wrong to speculate what the exact cause was. What they've said publicly is that there were four subsidiaries out of about 140 where there have been problems and they were in the UK. And this is a global business, about £250 million of turnover. I think that is a clue in itself. 140 subsidiaries is a lot. And I think that has led to uh, what David Kershaw described. I mean, he admitted was a sort of spider's web. I think it was... A, probably a complex business to keep their eye on but they also admitted to me they didn't want to comment because they are actually subject to a financial conduct authority investigation they didn't want to comment on the details but they admitted they they didn't have enough of a grip on the finances so somewhere along the line i think when you've had have people in charge for 25 years there's no doubting their commitment but did they have the tightest corporate governance no, they didn't. Fascinating story. Uh, Gideon, thanks so much for your time and for coming on um, to tell us what's in the mag. And remember, uh, the latest edition of Campaign is out. I'm very pleased about that. And remember, um, all the content will be on campaignlive.co.uk in due course as well. Gideon, thanks so much. Please come on again soon. Thanks for having me, Omar. 
Right, uh, let's get on to Brittany's interview, uh, in, which is about discrimination in casting. And then we'll be back to talk about some ads. Let's go back a few months to the end of May when the Black Lives Matter protests broke out around the world after the killing of George Floyd in the U.S. It started as a movement against police brutality and violence, but it has since prompted a deeper examination of a lot of biases and inequalities that often went overlooked before. So from education to the workplace to pop culture. And in film and advertising, one of those issues that we're talking about again is casting. On screen, it may look like the diversity of ads has improved, and it has in many ways, but behind the scenes, there are often inequalities and prejudice that go unchecked. In June, during Can Lions online conference, Alex Bennett Grant, the founder and CEO of the agency We Are Pie, said racist casting calls are the ad industry's dirty secret. Alex told me recently, Casting is the most tangible and stark example of anti-Black behavior in the advertising creative process. Everything that we do before that moment, winning business, client relations, writing strategies, coming up with ideas, filters into that one point of who's making it, who's in front of the camera, and who's behind it. This is the subject of a feature I wrote for Campaign's September issue, and it's also the subject of today's podcast. My guests today are Alex, along with Jody Furlong, founder of the iCasting Agency. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Nice to be with you. So, Alex, the subject of casting has been kind of weighing on you for a long time, right? And you said that over the summer when the Black Lives Matter protests started, that made you realize you need to talk about this. Um, Can you kind of go into that and what, what you did when you started thinking about this? Yeah, for sure. When the George Floyd murder happened, like many other people in the marketing world, I felt compelled to act in some way. The the difference was in this particular instance, uh, unlike majority of people in the industry, I sort of felt quite clear about what I needed to do. Um, Not because I had the upper hand, uh, simply because I'd been through um, so many instances of, of issues around race in my career that I felt like this particular thing was something that I could, I could at least speak up on. As an agency CEO, I've been through various forms of um, discrimination over the last 20 years. Mostly, I haven't felt comfortable talking about them. It's not something that has that generally leads to a successful career to call out um, um, acts of anti-blackness or generally doesn't get you very far in this industry. So there's only been a few occasions where I have, um, but you know, it's a painful reality of, of working in this business. Um, this this area of casting um, is is like I say where things come to a T. It's not the most strategic area. It's not the area that I spend most time working on uh, anymore. Um, but it is when the rubber hits the road, um, and it is where those in the room decide who gets to be represented in stories of society and, and what we blast out there. But it, but equally, it's highly subjective. It takes different forms in different places. I live and work and run a business out of Amsterdam. Um, which is very different from the UK and London. So I decided to make sure that I could validate my personal feelings and turn them into something more substantial. So I surveyed uh, what ended up being 500 people and learned 
um, you know, the areas where the industry feels there's space for real change, including um, responses such as 94% believe in the ad industry needs to take action on racist decision-making in the casting process. And so I turned that into a, um, a report, um, a research report, which I published, and then into a talk called Before You Shoot. So Jody, I actually came across you and your agency on Instagram. There was um, a post on advertising accountability about an, a brief that you had received um, that you called out and you and you responded to them. Um, can you tell us about that? Because it kind of illustrates some of the issues that Alex found in his survey. Yeah, I mean, from a from a casting perspective, and I've I mean, I've had the eye for since 2006 and before that I worked for other casting directors so like I've been doing this for 20 years and it was a given over many years we'd all become kind of co-opted into um, some of the racist um, structures that we just we just accepted certain things there were certain briefs we said oh that's fine we understand why you don't want to do that and there are certain tropes in casting you can't have a fat person in a food ad you cut like all these different things you can't it's fine to have gay people but they can't be too gay all these things we kind of bought into because, oh, that's just what the client wants. And over the years, you've just, you kind of got to go, well, actually, it might be what the client wants, but is that acceptable? And there comes a point when I own my own company. Um, my brother runs it with me. Um, the, my, our other full-time head employee is also black. So we work in an environment where day to day, we are not, we, we don't work in an environment where we have to, we can do whatever we like in our office. Yeah. So it's not something that we feel we, we're oppressed by very often because we run, we run things. But obviously every now and then you get a brief from a client that says things and we made a conscious decision a few years ago, we're not accepting that. So the brief that um, I specifically spoke out about was for uh, an alcoholic drink and it was a, uh, um, an ouzo drink so it was kind of um, aimed at the Middle East um, Turkey but also the usage was worldwide and that I did I started the initial casting and then I got an email from the client said oh we're really sorry but we've just heard back from the client no black people no tattoos and no effeminate men the brief wanted cool people from Shoreditch they wanted that was what they were looking for that's what they came to London to cast Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you can't cast a cool, cool people from Shoreditch, but no black people, nobody with tattoos, nobody who's too effeminate. I'm not doing this casting. It's blatantly racist and I'm not doing it. And their response was, oh, we're really sorry, but we can't push back to the, to the client because they've told us that the Azerbaijan market wouldn't like black people. I mean, that's just so dumb. It's not even worth answering. But they're very happy to disenfranchise every person of colour in the UK or America who, where this ad was also showing but we can't upset Azerbaijan. And that is the kind of response we often get in casting. It's often like Russia wouldn't like it, Poland won't like it, China won't like it. So there's mm-hmm. no, nobody, nobody takes responsibility for these markets. They, you can't cast in London and then use racism from other countries as an excuse not to use people. And I won't cast it. I mean, that's just one example. I have the worst brief I ever had. And I would have actually put this one on Instagram if I'd been able to find the actual email as proof. But the brief was for it was for a Chinese client. The brief literally said everybody must be um, Chinese or Pan Asian, half Chinese, must have almond shaped eyes, must not have slitty eyes to avoid looking untrustworthy. Wow. And that was written and sent to me as if I was going to put that out with my name on it. And I just sent them back and said, is this a joke? There's no way I'm putting that out. And they said, oh, no, that's come from our client. That's what you have to put out. And I said, well, I'm not doing it. Um, and then I saw it go out through somebody else. It, I mean, it, I, I would say it doesn't happen so much now. People are much more conscious mm-hmm. of this. And I think in the last five years, I would say, there's been a big mm-hmm. difference in the things that people will put in writing. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that the decision making is any <laughs> is any more inclusive. But I think right. there's definitely be a, a, a big change, especially I mean, absolutely in any UK casting that we do. Um, but there's still an issue around casting that comes from other territories that are not trying so hard to be inclusive. And so one of the problems that Alex, you told me about when we spoke previously was that when we when people are come to that moment of casting, it's often at the end of kind of a long process and there's a lot at stake. It's a, a lot of time pressures, budget pressures, pressures from the client. And it can be very difficult to speak up in that moment if something comes up that someone's uncomfortable with. So why, you know, do you think that things need to change within within organizations to allow people to, to kind of press pause on that? Yeah, I think that there's um, a couple of ways to look at it. You know, you can look at it from the bigger picture view about the fundamental um, barriers to us doing the work that we are, you know, uh, should be in business to do to move things forward um, through 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 advertising to, to 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 widen the aperture of representation. I think that we, as an industry, are so under pressure and are constantly being told that advertising is being disrupted and advertising is not relevant and no one wants to watch advertising. And so our natural reaction is sort of desperate attempt to try and be relevant and this desperate attempt to try and be. Uh, culturally relevant and even even become part of popular culture and that creates this sort of idea that we're an underdog and that we're trying to be relevant and we're trying to sort of uh, and it's simply not true we are incredibly powerful Um, we are the most powerful medium in media because we have the most money and we force people to watch what we create uh, in order to see the things they actually want to watch yeah, fundamentally, casting and um, who's behind the camera in front of it is at the end of the supply chain. Uh, and there is a huge amount of pressure. The conversation needs to happen at the beginning yes. um, of the client relationship. It needs to happen with senior management. Um, and it can happen now because it's a universal topic. This is no longer a taboo. It's a conversation that I can have as a CEO with a CMO or a CEO. Um, we can set objectives together. We can assess how we uh, take that through. Uh, And so when it gets to casting, um, bidding for directors and producing, it's not, it doesn't become a a barrier. It can just become part of the process. Yeah, Jody, you feel that way as well, right? That that (laughs) you'd like to be brought in earlier in the process as a casting director. 100%. I feel that often decisions are made, and not just around um, diversity, but around budgets, around usages, around all kinds of things. Decisions are made way up the food chain. They get to casting director and we're like, well, we can't work with this. This doesn't work. Mm. We have to pull people up on the diversity of briefs. We have to pull people up on the usages and explain things to people that should have been decided and people should have thought of way before it gets to us. Also, just on the on the point of advertising having power, I mean, I hope advertising has power. Or else there's no point to it. Mm. I mean, the whole point is of, of, of the advertising industry is to influence people and we influence how people think about things. So I feel like casting and advertising is on the like the vanguard of diversity because we set the agenda or we should. We should want to set the agenda, and we have done in lots of different issues. And this is one that obviously is high profile now, and it's something that absolutely advertising has a, a big role to play. Jody, I'm curious, because um, when you started the I, it was kind of around the time of the Dove Real Beauty yeah. campaign, which was very groundbreaking, which you worked on, right? 
Yeah. So the first, um, when I first got into casting and working for other other casting directors, we did all the Dove adverts. So that was my kind of entrance into casting was these yeah. very diverse campaigns around ethnicity, but also around size, around age, around all different views of beauty. And obviously they were a massive success. Massive success. So I think going into um, opening my own company a few years later, my casting experience was very based around diversity. Obviously, I'm black as well. I'm gay. So diversity was my life. My yeah. friends, everybody that I was surrounded by was very diverse. We did loads of street casting to begin with. And out of the street casting came the I agency um, where we represented all the cool people we'd met. And I think we were the first kind of people to kind of have that street casters cast aesthetic and yeah. take it into modeling because we didn't have fashion models and we didn't have commercial models we had real cool cool kids we wanted it to be people just being themselves not telling you you have to look like this or you have to look like that you can have whatever hair you like you can be whatever size you like and obviously that is very much the way the industry has gone over the past 15 years yeah so that's diversity is would you say that's kind of the buzzword when you're casting now yeah i mean it's in every single brief yeah every- <laughs> and but one of the major problems that I hear about a lot is that while it may look like on screen, you know, the cast have have grown more diverse. Mm-hmm. Often when you go on a shoot, the crew is not diverse. No. And so Jody, for example, when some of your models go on set, they're often maybe the only black person there, right? Yeah. I mean, I had a um a, a discussion with the model agency at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter. And they said to me, because I, I'm also, I also scout models. I've got models that are placed all over the world. But um, one of the London agencies said, could we have a talk with you and two of the girls you have signed with us? Because they're the two kind of um, in town black girls. Can we have a discussion? And these are models. I mean, one is very, she's been doing, she's done Victoria's Secret. She does Dolce & Gabbana. And she said she's been modeling for seven years and she's never shot with a black photographer. Wow. And one of the other other girls who does all the big shows, Burberry and Dolce & Gabbana and Tom Ford, she says, when you comes to doing your hair, you're always last in line because the hairdressers ignore you because they don't want to have to deal with your hair because they're not confident in doing black hair. Mm. So it's it's those kind of little things, those kind of microaggressions that day to day you don't think about. You don't even think about that as racism per se, but it's those mm-hmm. little things that people have to learn to deal with that other people don't have to think about. She said, one of the girls said that she cried on set once because she walked in and there was another black girl there and she'd never done a modeling job where she wasn't the only black girl because mm. she's always there as to represent the whole of the black race as one person. To the, to the wider population, I understand these are models. These are privileged people who get to have very good lives and have their photos taken and get paid lots of money. And I understand why people might not think these are big concerns, but they're concerns that other people don't have to think about. And it takes up mental space in your head when you should be able to just be getting on with your job. Yeah. Alex, do you feel that the production industry is kind of on the same page as ad agencies and and thinking about this? Like, what do you think needs to change kind of behind this, behind the camera? Um, Well, I think there are two sort of parts to it. um, And both of them are difficult, but both of them are worth doing. So on on one end of the spectrum, you know, production companies can't control the fact that they are at the end of a supply chain. Um, I mean, the, uh, as opposed to making their own content for, for other means. And so, you know, you've seen a lot of movement, predominantly in the US, um, where, you know, it's like the front line of these type of conversations. Um, you see a lot of movement in the last few years about, you know, big brands uh, making big 
um, statement about their expectations from agencies. We expect our agencies um, from now on to be diverse, full stop. When you're sitting in an agency, um, I imagine that that pisses you off because, because you know, um, because it, it's putting the pressure, it's, it's passing the buck from, from the brand to the agency. We need you guys to, 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 to fill the gap that we can't fill ourselves. Um, and, you know, and I'm, and I'm talking about that in the broadest sense, you know, whether you already have representation or whether you don't, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure. And the same goes with agency, the production partners, um, you know, um, we are, you know, trying to make change and we therefore expect the production partners to be able to help us make the change. It's very difficult, um, but it is a necessary pressure. All these pressures are necessary in order to force the conversation because then you get into discussion about how, methods, action. On the flip side, you know, how, who and how do you start a production business? Um, mm-hmm. You know, take the UK as an example. Um, that is not an easy um, thing to do. Um, there is definitely a certain type of person from a certain type of background who can afford mm-hmm. to take the risk to set up a production business, you know, the prerequisite being a lot of cash. Um, and so, you know, what happens is we start to see change um, you know, there are some amazing examples, uh, the I being an example from the casting world. Thank you. Um, <laughs> about the, the efforts they've taken, um, you know, in the last few uh, years, well, since founding, essentially, to, to represent um, women and, and, and minorities. So there are cases, but there are also a lot of smaller businesses, right, who, who will probably start by servicing the niche. Um, but as the industry diversifies, opportunities start to to come about and that's where the focus needs to be because you can't you, you can't expect a incumbent large production house to radically transform its um its slate of directors and its management team because these businesses are quite small you know you're talking about a couple of producers running a business with five to ten directors uh who have spent decades getting to their status you can't change that easily mm-hmm. um but you can you can give more opportunities to the yeah. smaller new businesses which would otherwise historically have just been marginalized as oh that's just the black production company that does the urban shoots you know breaking out of those assumptions which i I do see happening is the the steps that we need to take and also the idea that you should have a diverse workforce it's not just a tick box exercise it's not just about diversity it's so you make better product because diversity of when you're an ad agency diversity of your ideas must be important and we're not just talking about ethnic diversity. I think there's a big cross-section between ethnicity and class, um, yeah. between education. What exactly are you looking for in someone in work, works in an ad agency? Is it the person who got the first from Oxbridge or is it someone with great ideas? And where do you find these people and how do you value their ideas? I mean, it also, right. also gender. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for, for years. I don't I can't remember coming across um, a female creative. I'm not saying they don't exist, but they're in the minority. Um, they're still very yeah. rare yeah. so it's it's all those different things because if you're trying to advertise to women why why are there not women coming up with ideas if we're trying to advertise to the world why don't we have ideas from people from around the world with different experiences and different perspectives so it's not just about having a diverse workforce for the sake of it it's about being better at your job I've been reading about different approaches to casting and in film and tv and theater they're this has been a topic as well. And there seem to be kind of two main schools of thought about how to consider ethnicity and race in casting. So colorblind casting 
is when race is not specified or overtly considered during the casting process. And for example, the recent David Copperfield film adaptation, the director said he used that approach when he was casting. And so he cast Dev Patel in the main role. And that's the first time I believe that a a person of color has played that character on screen. But that can also go wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an example of the the TV adaptation of Normal People. So in an article in Galdem, a writer pointed out that all of the people of color in that TV series were playing characters who were very unlikable and one, <laughs> one notable one notable example is um the character who marianne dates when she goes to sweden and he's a photographer who they get into an, a relationship that ends up being a bit you know abusive and in the novel that character is actually explicitly described as a blonde man who looks very um, Scandinavian, but they cast a black man to play that role. And inadvertently that can kind of reinforce some negative images of black men. So that's an example where maybe, you know, maybe they should have thought about that. So many, you know, other people advocate for this approach of color conscious casting, which does take ethnicity and race into account and even considers how that might play out in the story, how the characters might play their roles as a person of color. So what do you two think of these approaches? Do you think that one is better than the other? I just want to say that I'm so glad that someone else observed that from normal people. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching that. It was playing out in my head and it was really like really it was like a big debate in my head because mm. on one side exactly what you just said I was like hold on a minute I'm really enjoying this show but what's going on here yeah. um, on the other side I finished the show realizing that all of the characters are really annoying um <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to have them over to a party <laughs> yeah and, and they've all got these massive flaws and, and that's part of the story yeah, you know, it just so it turns out that the, one of the main black characters has one of the most sort of like aggressive and um, yeah, unusual characters. So that was did stand out. But anyway, to answer your question, um, I I don't have enough experience of color blind anything um, because I can't. Um, it's it's not really been a part of my experience um, as, a, as a as a as a professional personally. Um, the only thing it does take me back to is, you know, sort of pre-advertising discussions about, oh, I don't see race, which I just find ridiculous. Um, So by default, um, maybe through my ignorance um, of the other approach, I'm all about the latter, um, which is, you know, um, know, really embracing and actively thinking through roles. Um, I feel like that's what creativity is. I don't think the other approach is necessarily wrong. I'd have to learn more about it. But what the, the approach we're taking um, in, the, in the main part is all about this idea that if you do not actively engage in thinking through roles, characters, stories, nuances, you know, uh, layers, uh, then you will probably fail to make progress. So I feel like those two parts are necessary, not just the sort of, oh, it's a look, it's a coincidence, we cast a black person, what a lovely surprise. But, but but for me, it's more about no. We we had the discussion in the team. We went through the, you know the, the difficult chats. 
we 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 learned more than we previously knew about different cultures, different perspectives, and we consciously made a decision to build a narrative in this way. That's that, yeah. That for me is a bigger picture discussion, which I've applied. I agree. Um, I think I think there are there are instances where, of course, you can cast colorblind. I mean, when it, when it, when it when it's not um, relevant to the actual role, what what ethnicity people are of, that, and I'm I'm very um, supportive of that. But I feel that this colorblind casting really is just an excuse not to tell the real stories of people of color. One program that drove me about was Broadchurch with Olivia Coleman and David Tennant, which was set in a fishing village in Dorset, and in the police station, they had two black female detectives. The chief of police was black. Um, Lenny Henry ran the garden centre. The local councillor was Asian. Um, the guy who ran the deli was black. Um, and in every scene, there was a guy with a turban. Her, half the jury were of people of colour. That's not, that's just stupidity. In, that's not re- realistic in a Dorset village. But what that does is, what you, if by doing that, instead of telling stories set in Peckham, in a black hair shop, or um, the local African church or whatever, like set stories in places where there are going to be stories of people of colour. And then you don't have to think about these things. But just putting black people into situations that don't really ring true doesn't help anybody as far as I'm concerned. One show that really impressed me in the way they did it was um, I May Destroy You, which is obviously very impressive (laughs) across all kinds of, for all kinds of reasons. But it was a show with a predominantly black cast, but the show wasn't about being black. It was about lots of issues. It was about friendship and assault and consent, but it was never explicitly about racism. It was those those topics were touched on because as a black person, you're going to have to touch on those topics. But it wasn't about that. And I think it's very rare that we see that um, in any kind of drama, because any usually in a drama, when there's a predominantly black cast or significant black cast, it's set in, I don't know, an inner city and it's about a gang or something. So for me, having a voice like Michaela Cole um, is almost like a game changer. I think it's very, very important. Yeah, there's actually a scene in I May Destroy You that I write about in my feature about casting because it kind of illustrates some of the the points that we've been talking about. So the, do you remember the scene where Terry goes on that audition mm-hmm. and the casting director who's white says, is that your real hair? And then starts asking her a lot of questions about her hair. And she says, no, it's a wig. And so they're having this conversation. You can see that Terry's growing more and more uncomfortable. And then the woman says, well, can we see your real hair? Can you take off your wig? And Terry says, well, no, you know, maybe another time so I can prepare it. And I think that that, you know, there's so much you can unpack in that scene. But something that's interesting about this moment is that now, hopefully we are having those conversations, we are looking at Mm -hmm. scenes like that, and, and trying to understand what went on there and what, what we could do better. Um, Do you do you both feel that we are at a turning point in being able to address some of this. I mean, absolutely. And I think that's one of the heartening things that has come out of this discussion as it has become a wider discussion. It's not just about police brutality and the N-word. It's about the subtleties of racism. It's about the structural nature of racism. And um, in casting, as I said, we're on the forefront of that. It's really about how we represent people. I'm a board member of the Casting Directors Association. We've had so many zoom meetings about this over the summer um Mm. and we're starting a mentorship program to increase 
um, diversity within casting. And hopefully that can reach out further than casting into production, into directing, into um, advertising agencies. It's about finding people who need an opportunity, giving them an opportunity and using our contacts to give them um, a step up within the industry. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, what I accept um, is um, that history will repeat itself. Um, and I think that, you know, um, I'm second generation uh, Jamaican, um, well, mixed race Jamaican. And um, I think that our parents' generation, um, their biggest goal was to try to resolve, um, you know, um, racial tension, if you, if you look at the UK, um, so that we wouldn't have to deal with it. I think that's just universal yeah. belief. Um, and and that's a beautiful goal. We we stare down the barrel of of, of the reality that that isn't um, possible. Um, that we we're going to have to continue to work through these topics as a society. Our industry is the same. You know, our industry is born out of those societies, and we we are now going through the realization that it hasn't been fixed. It's not a quick fix. Um, and these things, you know, these things happen every couple of generations right or every generation there's always a big drive for uh, supporting minority talent um let's be honest those drives often only last a couple of years but the impact um can be massive and if we can just extend this period from a news story into a sustained effort um with our eyes open over the next few years then I really believe the impact's going to be really positive. As the UK has proven in front of the camera for the last few years, those same um, steps can be taken behind the camera, in senior management and in the ads, which um, uh, eventually end up in Poland, in China, in Azerbaijan, in Germany, and all the other markets that apparently don't like brown faces. Um, Alex, can you just tell us a bit about that pledge that you set up? Because I think it's uh, it's an important thing for agencies to check out. Yeah, it's called Before You Shoot. You can find it, uh, you can Google it, beforeyoushoot.info. First of all, it's a research report. Uh, it, it contains a lot of findings from 500 respondents. So a lot of agencies have used that to have conversations internally. A lot have reached out. Um, I've spoken to a lot of agencies and brands about it in, in the UK, US, um, and and in Europe, and on the other side, it's a pledge, um, and it's you know it's a step, right? You know, similar to how um, you know free the bid was was is a first step towards uh, trying to make a change in uh, representing women in, in, in directors. Um, Before you shoot is the first step towards a pledge towards um, getting rid of uh, anti-black casting decision making. You, you can't expect people to just start um, discussions about race and racism without the right tools in a client meeting over Zoom. Um, we need to allow um, decompression, uh, create environments in our agencies and brands so that people can discuss this stuff and expect that it might come back up again, as opposed to being shocked and disgusted and disappointed that someone brings it up after the fact. So that's the the, the crux of it. Um, but like I said, it's before you shoot.info and there's a lot of useful resource there. You can also find it on walk, um, walk.com uh, in the research um, section there it is really incumbent on clients and ad agencies to, to have these discussions. Um, it, mm. This is a separate, uh, longer discussion, but the Equalities Act of 2010 explicitly says that you cannot discriminate in casting. So in advertising, in any kind of employment. So 
it is actually a legal requirement that people really need to be aware of. Um, it doesn't, mm. it's, it, it's very difficult for us in casting to adhere to this act because it's not written for us, but it is something that is on the books and it is something that people should at least acknowledge and be aware of. Mm. Well, I think we could talk about this for a long time <laughs> and I hope that it's just the start of the conversation. Like I said, I wrote about this for a campaign September issue and just to get some people thinking about it, but I hope that, like you said, it, it, it continues and that this change really lasts beyond this moment. Um, but thank you to both of you so much for talking about this. And I've learned a lot from our conversations. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brittany Kiefer there, and you can, of course, read Brittany's feature online. Just go to campaignlive.co.uk, um, where you can also watch um, the latest and best ads in the UK um, under the work section. And we're going to talk about some of them now, Jeremy Lee. Uh, so first one, we have Yorkshire Tea uh, by Lucky Generals. Uh, this brings social distancing guidelines to the office with, um, I think we can describe it as an elaborate teapot. Brew? Yeah, go on. Heading back to work? Wondering how to tackle the tea round at a safe distance? Introducing the social distancing teapot. The ad shows colleagues attempting to tackle the tea round at a safe distance. And then it's got this ridiculous two metre spout on this teapot. Jeremy, what do you think of this? Love it, absolutely love it. It's, it uses humour. Um, that's a quality I'm always banging on about that's absent quite a lot. I just thought it was really funny and it's really simple. Um, and Lucky Generals has always, well, has consistently produced a great body work for, for Yorkshire Tea and this is another one. So kudos to them. What about you? Did you like it? Well, Jeremy, we disagreed a lot on last week's <laughs> episode about the different ads and I regret to inform you I loved it too. I, I absolutely <laughs> love this ad. It really uh, made me laugh. And it's, you know, it's in the style of, you know, it's kind of set, it has that kind of office chic, uh, <laughs> the office TV show, I mean. Um, but it's just, you know, just really funny things and just all think, you know, even just some little bits of conversation, like that guy on the phone, like having this kind of frustrated conversation that has to explain something in a document or whatever. It's, 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 it's just really well done and it makes the comedy stand out, kind of just, you know, um, punctuating those real world moments so you know we were talking about how difficult it is to do covid advertising and it just shows that you can kind of get it right can't you so it's reality and humor and they've managed to pull it off and it's brilliant so well done yeah. now for something completely different we have square space who have um, their own in-house team has launched, uh, well, they've launched an ad called Launch It, uh, which is supposed to be pretty epic in scale. Let's have a quick listen. Echoing Fox Delta Zero, Echo Charlie 7. We're going for countdown. Eight, seven, This ad follows it's a speaker brand, a farming company, a honey maker. Uh, they're trying to promote their goods on Squarespace and, you know, it's super cinematic. Um, it was actually directed by um, Ian's Pons Jewel, uh, one of um, campaign's top directors. Um, so, big budget. How do you think about that, Jeremy? Uh, I love this as well, I'm afraid. I think it's brilliant. I love big, I'm an old fart, so I love big filmic epic ads. You know, critics might say it's a mood film perhaps, but I just thought... <laughs> The ambition by it, behind it is just 
phenomenal. And um, I don't know where it's going to run or whether it gets seen by that many people, but it's just brilliant. I loved it. How about well, you? I was, go- I was going to ask about that, where it's going to run, because I've not, you know, I've, um, the, these other ads we're talking about, I've seen them. I've seen the next one I'm going to talk about on television. This Squarespace one. This is the first time I've seen it on our website, and I think um, I didn't feel as strongly positive about it as you did. But I think that is a result of seeing it on a tiny laptop screen. You know, this is. It's like um, I watched Mulan, which has been released on Disney Plus, not the cinemas, the, the the Disney remake of that movie, and it's you know it's got these amazing landscapes of um, China. And it's amazing visuals, but I'm watching it on my TV and you just, some, some video is just made to be watched on a big screen on the cinema. And I just wonder, I'm, I presume that they're going to run this in cinema, but I, I, I think this doesn't work on a small screen, the Squarespace ad. It doesn't. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's, um, it would, it's definitely a cinematic experience and it's quite unsatisfactory, well, a bit more unsatisfactory on a small screen. So, um, yeah, let's hope so. But I'd love to see it in the cinema. It's, I, God knows how much it would cost to buy a three minute spot mind you the audience is pretty much non-existent at the moment aren't they so quite not cost a lot but um yeah no good work by then yeah um finally we have o2 this is introducing a blue robot called bubble i think his name is which is um yet another uh, o2 brand mascot they've had a few of them let's have a quick listen always when we find I kiss you once or twice and everything's forgotten. Bubble there. Uh, the brand presume it used to use a blue rabbit. I was gonna say I don't remember a blue rabbit at all. I'm missing it. I remember the Beemore dog, but I don't remember a blue rabbit. Yeah, do you, you don't remember Follow the Rabbit? <laughs> You can you can Google uh, Blue Rabbit O2 campaignlive.co.uk in your preferred search engine uh anyway forget the rabbit it's dead this is this ad is by um o2's longtime ad agency vccp um what do you think about bubble the robot um in truth i not a lot um i don't like robots i think they sort of display a, i say i don't like i don't like robots in advertising because they sort of display a bit of a lack of an idea it's, is it using a robot as an allegory is quite lazy thinking dare i say and i do like uh <laughs> ben ben on the producer, producer ben is not happy um but I, I, that said i've i've always enjoyed um otis advertising this one didn't really work for me i know you, as tech editor you probably love it and you're probably going to get a bubble toy in your bed and all sorts Oh, you love robots. Can you write about technology? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I th- I think it's I think it's all right. Um, I like the little um, cover of one the Wanna Die song as the soundtrack. Um, you know, it's it's all right. I mean, I was watching it. Um, I mean, it's a sixty second version we've got on our website. I was watching it for about thirty seconds, and I couldn't even remember which brand it was. If I'm honest, I think. Um, that's the problem with robots. That's the problem with robots. They're used too often. They're not. They're not interesting. You. It's, yeah. uh, it's just. A, it's a. It's a familiar device, and it's unsurprising. And I don't know. It just didn't work for me. 
Yeah, I think um, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, you, you want to kind of cut through and do something original. And yeah, I, I definitely was affected emotionally by the ad. You know, I was kind of interested in this little story about what this robot's doing and the interactions. But I kind of, I missed all the kind of things which are peppered in there, like, you know, the mobile payments and blah de blah And I, I, I'm, I think I'm just one of those um, less discerning consumers who needs to be hit in the face, Tango Man style with their advertising. <laughs> Right, we're going to get out of here. Um, thank you so much, Jeremy Lee, for joining me. And um, I'll be sure to pass on any fan mail or otherwise that comes your way. <laughs> and of course, thank you to Gideon Spanier, Brittany Kiefer, and our guest this week. Uh, thank you to you, listener, um, for listening again. Um, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Campaign Podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening on your favorite podcast player. Uh, and thank you, of course, to Ben Lonsborough, our producer. Thanks so much. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.